All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington. And today I'm joined by Atul Deo. Atul is general manager of Amazon Bedrock. Before we get into today's conversation, be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Atul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sam. Excited to be here today. I'm super excited to have you on the show, and I'm looking forward to kind of diving in with you and talking through kind of this crazy LLM landscape, generative AI landscape that uh, is rapidly evolving. But before we do that, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and your role at Amazon. Sure. So I lead product and engineering for Amazon Bedrock. I've been with Amazon for the last eight and a half years. I started my career as a software developer many years ago. I wrote code for a few years, then felt a need to understand business concepts, went to business school, and then worked for a few years in various functions, such as corporate development. And then in the last few years, I've been busy building products at AWS. You know, one of the things that I've been kind of finding interesting about this point in time is that a lot of the kind of the more sophisticated enterprises had like, you know, over the past several years, gotten onto the machine learning train, you know, built up competency around traditional models and everything that came along with that ML ops. And now there's still an opportunity to get value out of AI, but it's a totally different language that we're asking them to to use and, and think about. We're throwing out terms like LoRa and parameter efficient tuning and RLHF. When I talk to folks, particularly folks that are at the executive level, like they're overwhelmed with a lot of this language. And really they, for better or for worse, mostly for worse, like they want magic. <laughs> like I use this this chat GPT thing. It seems like magic. Yeah. I want that magic for my enterprise. Like, do you see similar things? I definitely hear a lot of this from customers. And I think customers want to understand or unravel kind of what is really going on here because for them they as you rightly said they have some experience in machine learning at a smaller scale within their company but uh, this almost feels like a paradigm shift and so let me just try to uh, take a quick stab at demystifying uh, some of that for the listeners right so in the past customers or companies typically would embark upon building task-specific models for a particular use case. Let's just take a use case of detecting fraud in a particular organization or creating a chatbot for customer care. Now, what would typically happen in a large company is that a particular leader would go to an SVP or a VP and say, hey, this is an important problem for our company. And I need to build machine learning model for this particular problem. And I need to go hire few scientists. I need to go uh, annotate a bunch of data to build a model for this. And, and here's my bill. And the VP would evaluate the proposal on a case-by-case basis and would basically say, you know, the problem looks interesting. It's strategic. The cost is uh, decent. Let's go build a machine learning model. And a few weeks back, the team came back and said, you know, we built a model. It's working great. And the VP is happy. Now, the problem is this approach worked well for a few use cases. And the moment customers or companies saw that uh, the machine learning was effective for, for the organization, they wanted to scale it for kind of moving from tens of use cases to hundreds of use cases within their company. And also they were 
finding problems with doing that because first of all like machine learning experts in this world are still limited it's 2023 but the problem which was true in 2013 is still true in 2023 it's there are only so many data scientists and ml experts around out there and mm-hmm. uh, furthermore the cost and the effort of doing custom annotation can be pretty significant like it's just a lot of effort you know it, and it's not just about finding the humans to do it you need the data scientists and the ml experts to again be involved in kind of defining what annotations need to happen they need to kind of evaluate the quality of the annotations that come back and essentially ensure that the machine learning model is getting the right quality of data now this process can be pretty onerous for a lot of small and medium sized businesses let alone large uh, companies right so i think with foundation models the big thing that has changed is that you're no longer training individual task specific models there's almost like this centralized training of one large model that makes use of a large amount of unlabeled data now the i'm stressing on the word unlabeled data because uh, unlabeled data is easy to get right unlike like labeled data where you it depends upon a lot of like human effort you can basically get a lot of data from the internet from a bunch of different proprietary sources and you can use them at scale without having to depend upon an army of people to go label the data basically saying a dog is a dog and a cat is a cat <laughs> simply more simplifying the the labeling process but that doing that at scale even for for example an image right identifying every single part in the in a single image can be pretty onerous so doing that is really freed up the ability for people to train this large language yeah. models now what happens under You're the code is you're making it sound easy though <laughs> it is actually in some ways the, the bottleneck or the challenge is you know you have to collect a large amount of unlabeled data you do have to apply hygiene on kind of using this data for training then there is uh, you need a large amount of compute to make use of this data and now the way it happens is you throw uh, this all this compute and the model makes use of algorithms to learn the relationships between the words on its own you are not really kind of teaching it anything uh, in terms of labeled data the model understands sequential relationship between words and then says you know i understand basically that hey if there are a set of words before this i roughly know what is the next word that's going to follow based on again i'm simplifying for our illustration purposes but at the heart of it that's basically what is happening and every time the model generates next kind of output it uses that as the input to predict the the next set of outputs so it's basically called as auto regressive behavior now at the end of all this what you get is a well trained model which which has completed its pre training process and it is capable of dealing with a large number of tasks out of the box now the standard set of tasks for a text a generative text model could be things like sentiment analysis classification information extraction being able to converse right these are then again the list goes on and on there's a lot of tasks that come kind of automatically as part of the pre training process and now customers can take this model and adapt it for their particular use case within a company by just using a very small amount of labeled data now this dramatically simplifies some of the things that we discussed earlier which is companies had to go hire teams invest in a lot of compute for training individual models and now they just get a ready made pre trained model that somebody else in, in this case amazon we do pre train our own models for as part of bedrock and also we have partners like anthropic who have developed this large uh, foundation models but somebody else has done the work the hard work for them which is a, a great starting point right that's kind of the way to think about it companies get an incredible starting point that they can then take and either use it out of the box in most cases they can use it out of the box 
in some cases, they may have to customize it or there are different ways of customization, fine-tuning, continued pre-training, reinforcement learning with human feedback. So there's some different, and, and LoRa, like the parameter-efficient fine-tuning. So that's kind of the general kind of structure, which is use it out of the box or customize it by changing the model's weights. Yeah, I kind of quipped that, hey, you make it sound easy. And certainly, in many ways, it's easier than... You're certainly using a, a pre-trained model is easier than if you need to train it yourself. But there are still challenges associated with getting these models to do you know, the productive things that you want them to do. I'm curious, what are the things that you find folks running into you know, when they're trying to put these, these models to use? Absolutely. So that is a key question because, you know, think about the analogy. I'm going to start off with an analogy and then we will get into the exact specifics. So think about a company that hires an extremely smart person from the outside, takes them, hires them, but puts them in a conference room with no access to their internal systems or internal documents. And this employee is not going to be very productive. So a raw pre-trained LLM is almost like this employee who is sitting in a conference room with no access. So what needs to happen is this uh, LLM or this employee in this analogy needs to be given access to different tools and it needs to be made cognizant of the different data sources in the company. That's when the LLM can be truly productive for the, for the organization. And there are different ways of going about it. Now, one approach is to use the model in an out-of-the-box capacity and then the other approach is actually customizing that using the proprietary data. Now, let's dive deep into each of those uh, different kind of approaches. Now, in the first one, where you can use the model in out-of-the-box capacity, there are, this, you know, again, I, for most uh, listeners of your podcast, they may be familiar with the term called as prompt. That is the basic interaction model with which you communicate with, with large language models. Essentially, it's a natural language command. The simplest example is, hey, here's a doc. Can you summarize it? And boom, you basically mm -hmm. pass a doc and you get a summary uh, as a result. And the, the, this simple way is called as zero-shot learning. Essentially, you give a command, you get a response. Now, the next kind of, kind of on the spectrum, the more complicated one is something called as in-context learning, where you say, hey, I'm still dealing with out-of-the-box. I'm not changing the model's weights in terms of customization, but I'm basically now saying, here are a few examples of how I want you to do this. Do it this way. And th this is all part of the prompt. The model takes a look and basically says, I got it. Here's the answer. So that's in-context learning. Now, or few-shot learning. Yeah, or few-shot learning. Correct. Yeah. Now, in-context learning is basically a very powerful tool because there are a lot of models out there that essentially have this concept of uh, context length. How much data can you pass as part of your context window that allows you to do more and more powerful things? Now, some of the models from Anthropic, for example, they recently announced that they are supporting 100,000 tokens as the context uh, length. Now, that is pretty compelling because which means that you can pass really long documents, really long set of examples, or you can just pass a lot of contextual metadata as part of the prompt and then get your answers without actually doing customization by tinkering with the model weights. Now, let me be more specific. Now, there is a technique called as retrieval augmented generation that has emerged in the last uh, few weeks. Essentially, this goes back to the point of giving a smart employee access to your company's documents. Now, in some cases, I may want to get 
the model to actually do Q&A on my documents. Now, the way to do that is I can pass some of the, the relevant pieces of the documents in my company as part of the prompt itself and basically then ask the model, hey, here are a bunch of documents. Here's my question. Can you go take a look at these documents and think through them and basically give me a coherent response? And now with essentially with in-context learning or kind of RAG, essentially you get precisely that. where RAG you are is able to... retrieval augmented generation? Correct. I hear this as probably the, the number one kind of generative AI use case or request. My experience in it, it's usually voiced as, hey, I want chat GPT, but for my data. Yeah. So Sam, the way uh, companies do that typically is that, like, let's just take the use case of being able to answer questions on top of companies' uh, knowledge base. Now, to do this, there are several steps involved today. And obviously, these steps are going to simplify over the next uh, few weeks or months as, as more and more kind of companies, you know, they understand the customer pain points and, and simplify them. So the first step today is a company has a bunch of documents in their knowledge base. They essentially take these documents and then they chunk them into smaller pieces. So chunking is essentially converting them into small paragraphs or lines, relevant portions. And then essentially you pass those chunks into what we call as an embeddings model. Now, an embeddings model is a type of uh, large language model that takes uh, text as input and returns embeddings or mathematical representations that capture the semantic meaning of the input text. Now, once you get these embeddings, you put them into a vector database. There are many popular vector databases out there, such as Pineco and VV8 and OpenSearch. Now, once a company has gone through this process where they have converted all their internal documents, they've chunked them, they've created the embeddings, and they've, they've stored them into a vector database, Let's just take a hypothetical user query. Like, hey, I want to find out a response to a question, which is, what is the vacation policy for my company for a full-time employee? Now, behind the scenes, what's going to happen is that user query is going to be passed into an embeddings model, and you're going to get embeddings associated with that input query. And then under the hood, you basically do some matching between the embeddings for the user query and all the embeddings stored uh, in your vector database. And essentially, the relevant chunks of the, the text documents are extracted, and then they are passed to the large language models as part of the context. And now when the large language model sees the, the original question, which is the query from the user, along with the necessary or the relevant uh, pieces of documents, the large language model can then essentially formulate a very human-like answer that answers the, the precise uh, question. Now, again, these are all steps happening in the background. And what the user just sees is a well-crafted answer that sounds very human-like. And it is, it is a huge improvement over some of the traditional approaches that have existed in the past, like which made use of things like uh, keyword-based uh, search. So essentially, mm -hmm. with the large language models, uh, both the generative model and uh, the using the combination with the embeddings model, essentially we are reinventing a use case like semantic search. Now, just while we are on the topic of uh, embeddings model, this model actually, which doesn't get a lot of love out there on Twitter and whatnot, but uh, compared to the main generative model, but it's a very nifty model. It is used for many interesting use cases like clustering, anomaly detection, and things like that. But semantic search is really one use case where it, it shines and it's mm -hmm. kind of made some headlines. 
when you describe this process, it sounds very straightforward. What are you seeing in terms of the the challenges that folks run into trying to do this at scale? Like everybody wants this thing, right? Absolutely. They all want this, but not everyone has it yet. It must be harder than, hey, let's just throw a pine cone and, you know, suck all our documents in and you right. know, we'll have this capability. What are the big sticky points? So I think there are a couple of things. I think companies are still trying to figure out which models they use, which providers they use, and they also want to figure out whether they are going to build some of these applications in-house or whether they want to ready to use application themselves. And also, I think overall, I, I do think that companies don't necessarily want to think in terms of vector databases. They want to basically think in terms of, here are my documents. Here's my kind of, you know, here's the solution to answer questions on top of my documents. They don't want to really deal with uh, all the nitty gritties of this workflow that I described. I think on a, on a related topic, which is we gave the example of that well-educated employee kind of that's hired mm-hmm. without having access to tools and data sources. So we touched upon, as part of this retrieval augmented generation workflow, we, we touched upon a lot of, uh, for the data sources, but there is also an interesting kind of trend evolving in the last few months, which is based on this paper called React, which is reasoning and action, which I think is one of the, I don't know if it got as much attention, but it did. I mean, obviously people have been using the concept behind it like crazy, but essentially what it does, it, it allows companies to make use of the LLM invoke APIs and it relies a lot upon the model's uh, reasoning capabilities. So the way to this think the, about this is the idea behind tools or plugins uh, that yes, LLM exactly. can use to take action in the context exactly. of the response. Now, just in terms of setup, what happens typically is some, some administrator will have to create an agent and basically say, hey, this agent's purpose is to do so and so. And it mm-hmm. has to specify a list of resources. The resources could be a different set of APIs and what an API is supposed to do, what are the different parameters, and just plain English descriptions of what those parameters are supposed to do and what kind of outputs does that uh, function return or the API return, right? And, and then things like that. And similarly, they can also add some data sources. Now, what happens behind the scenes is ultimately you're still doing, at the end of it, you're doing a retrieval augmented generation because you're passing all that metadata as part of the prompt. And the model then kind of based on the user query, it figures out which which of the APIs and which data sources should I use can make multiple invocations of the model. And the way it works is I may go to a database, I may get some results, and then I pass that to the model. And then the model says, let me think about this. I actually need something else. Okay, so then it says, okay, I need to get information from another database. So it goes, gets information. Now, the model is essentially creating, uh, or the agent is essentially creating kind of this prompt on the fly that is helping the model think through the problem. And at the end of it, it's almost like the model has sufficient information to make the final kind of decision. And it says, you know, it has, I have all the information I need and here's the final answer. Now, this process of having the model think on what information is presented and kind of doing it in a recursive manner, I think that is truly transformative. Also, this is the concept behind which you may have heard of the popular thing, which is AutoGPT, where essentially you created this agent and then the agent kind of was able to quickly kind of understand a broader goal and then kind of create subtasks and kind of keep going 
and solving them on its own and particularly when you are able to combine things like do web search as one of the tools in its arsenal i think there are a lot of interesting kind of avenues that open up but i just wanted to kind of talk about this in the context of retrieval augmented generation and what are all the cool things that one can do simply by kind of not even actually customizing the model by tinkering with its model weights now the other kind of side of the story is that in context learning you need larger models which are capable with long context lengths and you just do it on the fly without any fine tuning but on the other end of the spectrum what what we hear from companies is i have specific set of use cases and i am very cost sensitive i would rather take a more kind of appropriate model which gives me the right combination of accuracy latency and cost and i can just fine tune that for my particular use case using my proprietary data now that approach is also a very fine approach because you're not then constantly dealing with a uh, with a large model and particularly in situations where latency is a factor when latency and cost are factors you may just want to go down that route with fine tuning again in in fine tuning as well there are there is the full blown fine tuning and then there are things like hey lightweight kind of parameter efficient fine tuning and, and things like lora that have emerged in the last few months you mentioned cost in there are you suggesting that the fine tuning approach is more cost effective than in context learning so here's the thing right if you want to do pure in context learning two things have to happen one is you need a model with the longer context lengths because mm-hmm. let's just take that example of kind of auto gpt where you are going to probably pass a lot of uh, kind of api expects and recursively it's going to keep adding context you need probably long context lengths the second thing is you need is a is a well trained model which can be large in size and typically larger in size means that it, the hosting can be expensive because it needs more expensive machines under the hood to do inference so because of these two factors like again they tend to make inference more costlier like the longer context length also requires kind of uh, it adds to the hardware requirements in terms of uh, hosting so as a result when someone wants to do that and those can be more expensive compared to when i just want to do fine tuning for a particular use case or using a, a smaller model compared to the the former okay the challenge that i think this is again there is no kind of we are still in the jury is out i think for some use cases i think we are seeing where customers are just going to rely upon this uh, paradigm of larger models in context learning and some use cases where customers are kind of sensitive about certain kind of requirements particularly around latency and cost they might just skew in terms of fine tuning it's hard to tell right now which approach uh, is the right one for a customer without actually understanding the specific details in their use case so we talked through a bunch of kind of these steps that are required to put these language models to good use you've not talked much about the kind of production side of things like when we talk about you know traditional models like there's this whole you know yes there's training and all that but then there's you know all of the inference considerations and evaluation and you know there's a whole set of considerations on that side of things how much of that stuff do you see folks struggling with on the LLM side you're absolutely right there has been this entire ecosystem around ml ops i think i do think that some of that ecosystem around ml ops is still relevant in this generative ai space or foundation model world think about something like as companies fine tune different models they're experimenting essentially and they are experimenting to see which of these fine tuned models ultimately i want to deploy in production 
so they may want to actually do some experimentation and see kind of for my use case is this model is model a a delivering the right results or is it model uh, c and for that particularly our service like bedrock integrates deeply with sagemaker experiments and it allows customers to do precisely that kind of ab testing and see kind of which which of the ultimately the the fine tune model they should deploy in production and of course there are many other things things like pipelines right where as a company i may just want to uh, fine tune my model on a periodic basis as soon as i have x amount of new data i may want to create some recurring things as part of my workflow so i do think again to answer kind of your question i think on this uh, there are existing tools but i also do think that we have to reinvent some of this tooling for the generative ai world because things like prompts these are our historical way of dealing with uh, systems was more structured in the generative ai world it's all in terms of kind of this prompt and it's kind of unstructured it just kind of while it's very powerful it also creates a unique set of things because not everything right. can be classified like in a binary way as hey, it's awesome or it's terrible it always requires uh, some human judgment in terms of kind of its output because in, let's just take an example of a summary model generated a summary and if you ask two different people what do they think they may both say kind of hey it's, it's summary is correct but i like one versus the other and that's why i'm going to pick different one it can be subjective so i think we have to figure mm-hmm. out kind of how to tackle that i think also on the inference side there are other challenges like hallucinations a more common kind of thing with large language models is that while they can be they can give a very compelling human like response they sometimes also tend to make up answers uh, and completely inaccurate answers right apparently there was uh, this lawyer who was trying to use a large language model and the large language model gave responses citing cases that were completely made up now i think as a customer as you are trying to rely on this i think it's very important that customers are aware of these issues and also as someone like us who is working on these technologies we are taking various steps to ensure that we train our models in a way that they almost learn to say i don't know right so that mm-hmm. is number one they also techniques like retrieval augmented generation or rag they actually help steer kind of reduce the hallucination because essentially you are giving them context as part of the prompt and essentially guiding the model to say your scope of your answer should be mostly limited to this so stick yeah. to the stick to the context that that's given to stick you stick to the script <laughs> exactly exactly that's actually a good one i have never actually used it i might might borrow this but again the challenge here is if you purely stick to the script then the distinction between the generative model and plain search uh, disappears right. you cannot have the cake and eat it too almost so you still need some amount of creativity left in the model but at the same time you want to make sure that they are not kind of bsing so mm-hmm. that's where kind of i think the you know the science will evolve in the next few weeks and months yeah you mentioned bedrock in the context of explaining some of the operational aspects of fielding llm based solutions like talk about bedrock like what what is bedrock what role does it play what are some of the key capabilities sure so bedrock is the easiest way for a developer in any company to build generative ai based apps it does not require this developer to understand any nuances of machine learning and they don't even need to deal with any underlying infrastructure it's a fully managed service that allows these developers to build any compelling apps using a range of different foundation models so just in terms of kind of the key points i want to highlight the first one is around choice with bedrock obviously we have embarked upon building our own 
set of foundation models, which we call as Titan. But in addition to offering the Titan models, we have also partnered with a range of innovative startups in this space, and specifically Anthropic AI21 and Stability AI. So Anthropic is a, is a famous name in this space. You know, I mentioned them a few times already in this podcast. And then AI21 is an innovative Israeli startup, and Stability AI is the company behind uh, Stable Diffusion. So we have an amazing set of partners on Bedrock. And then uh, the advantage with this approach is customers get choice. They are not just stuck to models kind of from one particular provider. The second is around, again, I think we mentioned this uh, a few times in this podcast, where these large language models tend to be, you know, they are compute hungry and they are data hungry, essentially, which means that they can be expensive to build and they can be expensive to run, particularly with things like longer context lengths and whatnot, and their larger size. So what has happened in the past few years is Amazon has invested a lot in its uh, custom silicon efforts. And specifically, we have built a chip called Trainium, which is a machine learning chip optimized on training, for training. And Inferentia, which is our machine learning chip optimized for inference. Now, these chips give us anywhere from 40 to 50% price performance advantage compared to uh, similar EC2 instances. And essentially... As with all things Amazon, and anytime we have a materially better cost structure, we want to pass some of those benefits to our customers. So that is kind of where we think we can help customers use uh, or deploy generative AI-based apps at scale when they use Bedrock. And then the next uh, thing is around customization and doing it in a secure manner. So obviously, we discussed a lot about customization today. So first and foremost, Bedrock is a a service that is default, uh, by default opt-out. So we don't store any customer data for improving the broader models, which I think is a very, very important point given some of the security concerns that we've heard from a lot of customers. In fact, you may have even heard like some kind of cases where people used a particular application and some of their data, proprietary data was leaked. And that's kind of a very scary prospect for a lot of CIOs out there. So we are opt-out by default. Second is, anytime a customer customizes the model, essentially what happens is we create a copy of the base model and we create a customized copy for them. And that model is private for that particular enterprise customer. And any data flowing through that model is only their data and no other customer's data flows through this. Also, customers can use Bedrock in with the kind of all the six, the familiar security constructs that they are accustomed to. So things like VPC private link and using their own VPC, essentially ensuring that no data actually goes to the public internet, which is a pretty key point for a lot of enterprise customers. Mm-hmm. And the last one is around tooling, right? So we talked about integration with SageMaker experiments for things like uh, MLOps, particularly for comparing which model do I ultimately need to deploy in production, but also a lot of the things that are evolving is like things like RAG, things like being able to create agents, like a lot of the tooling, I think that tooling is going to be important. And I think we want to focus on making that some of that tooling available to a lot of customers. In terms of a developer experience, how do developers interact with it? And maybe another way to ask this is prior to Bedrock existing, a developer could use something like SageMaker Jumpstart or Model Catalog or something to build around third-party models like is bedrock the same or is it different from an experience perspective yeah so bedrock is different so bedrock is a serverless uh, api so a developer does not need to understand concepts like 
infrastructure instances, endpoints, network topology. All they do is they get a simple serverless API and they can just select a model and they get to use it right away, right? They don't have Got to it. do any, any, any setup. They pay for what they use in terms of tokens. Again, some of the things like, hey, being able to swap a model, I think that's super easy. You just basically reference the model type you want. And even things like customization, you essentially point your proprietary data sitting in an S3 bucket. We do the customization or the actual training under the hood and a customized resource is ready for you. You essentially reference that resource or an R, an Amazon resource name, as part of your API and you're good to go. So the experience is very simple. From a like enterprise governance perspective, do you get questions like that? You mentioned VPCs and and some of the security considerations. On the MLOps side of things, we talk a lot about like model life cycles and that kind of thing. Are are we at the point where we know how to life cycle these customized LLM models that we're building into applications? That's a good question. So I think, again, as we think about pros and cons as a company, whether I, I want to use models in context without actual fine-tuning and changing the weights of the model, there are advantages because I get to use the latest and the greatest model. And when I fine-tune it, of course, I get the benefits of being able to do it in a cost-effective manner. But the one challenge could be that, hey, because anytime you fine-tune a model or customize a model by changing the weights of the model, the copy of the base model is created and your kind of the model is your own model, right? It's a copy of your mm-hmm. own model. So any upgrades that happen to the base model in the future will not directly propagate to this fine-tuned model. So let's say that we have a model version one and tomorrow we have a model version two after a few months. A customer who has fine-tuned it will probably have to re-fine-tune their, their model using their data, either the new data or the prior data, data that they used. So there is some figuring out that has to be done in terms of kind of how customers keep up and maybe we will have more kind of pipelines around this, right? That's where kind of the concept of pipelines comes into picture where you have almost automated things when you have a new model version come up, you can quickly kind of refine tune and uh, using the latest data and create kind of your proprietary model. But again, I think the bedrock is currently in preview and we are rapidly iterating to add a lot of certifications around compliance and whatnot. And that should kind of, you know, a lot of enterprise customers ask for that. So we will we will be taking care of that part. But some of these questions you're asking, I think those are pretty pertinent ones. And I think our thinking on that is evolving as we speak. Awesome. Where can folks go to learn more about Bedrock and the topics that we've talked about? So the first and foremost, uh, a few weeks ago, Swami, who's uh, the head of machine learning uh, data and analytics at Amazon, he published a generative AI-based blog. I would request the listeners to look at it. We talk a lot about a lot of different things, including Bedrock, Code Whisperer, and some of our investments in custom silicon. In addition to that, of course, listeners can go to aws.amazon.com slash Bedrock to learn more about the specific service. Awesome. And we'll drop links to both of those resources in the show notes page. And there's a bunch of other really interesting kind of technical blogs like how to do retrieval augmented generate. I think there's like two or three different takes using different tech stacks and a bunch of other folks. I think the developer evangelist team has been busy there and cranking yeah. these things out. And we'll put a link to those as well. That's all has been great chatting. Any thoughts on what we should be 
kind of looking forward to or, you know, what you're most excited about looking forward? I think the pace of innovation in this space has been staggering. I mean, I don't think either you or I have seen anything kind of in our lifetimes. And I'm really happy to be part of this uh, transformation. Really can't wait to see what customers will build with Bedrock. And in just in general in this space, we're in the golden age. Really, really excited for the times ahead. Absolutely. All right, Atul, thanks so much. It was great chatting with you. Thanks. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.